So if you'd like to look in uh, Luke's gospel, that would be great. Uh, Luke chapter 16. Luke 16. Okay, we're we'll starting in verse 9. Um, because last week we read the parable of the shrewd manager. Um, but just, just a quick reminder of that parable. You know, Jesus starts with this parable about a, a steward who um, is uh, going to be sacked because he has misused his master's wealth. Uh, and uh, so he's trying to think, what's he going to do? And he uh, has been discredited as a manager. So he's not going to be able to get himself another job as a manager. Uh, so what does he do? Well, he doesn't want to, he can't do manual labor. Uh, and, and he doesn't want to beg. So he thinks and he thinks and he comes up with a plan. And his plan is that he's going to write uh, down and reduce the debts of, of various debtors who owe his master money. And then they will owe him big time. When he is out of employment, they will look after him in this culture of reciprocity uh, where, they, where you owe and you honor each other for the things that you're given to each other. He will um, be looked after by those who he did a favor for. And the master, although he's pretty miffed at what has just happened to his property, he has to say to his um, steward, well, I've got to get it, give it to you. You've got me there. You've certainly been shrewd. You've taken the most of the opportunity and used wealth uh, to secure your future. So at least, although it's dishonest, it's shrewd. And he's been commended, not for his dishonesty, but for his shrewdness. And so, in verse 9, let's read from verse 9, thanks Naomi. It says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. Now, I don't know about ever any of you, but I've been kind of enjoying um, the Rings of Power uh, series that's out at the moment, um, um, uh, offspring from uh, Lord of the Rings. And you may remember in the original Lord of Rings a memorable scene where there is the uh, dragon, Smaug, who is jealously guarding a huge pile of gold in the lonely, mount lonely mountain. Do you remember that scene? And um, I found something about this which is quite interesting. Um, the question is, where did Smaug obtain his treasure? And it's quite simple. It was already within the Lonely Mountain when he seized it from the dwarves. In fact, the gold, not the dwarves, was the reason that Smaug attacked. Smaug's obsession with gold and treasure is clearly a huge part of his character. 
but it's not really an original idea. There are numerous old tales about dragons hoarding gold, especially during the Middle Ages. Um, dragons came to embody the worst parts of humanity, the cardinal vices as defined by Christian texts. The Anglo-Saxon epic poem Beowulf is probably the best example of dragons guarding gold. And as a professor of Anglo-Saxon history and English language and literature, J.R.R. Tolkien was aware of the trope and worked it into his writings. Thus, Smog's embodiment of greed is based in history. So, there you are. Okay, we have a greedy dragon, and basically all he wants to do is just keep his gold. Doesn't want to use it, doesn't want to do anything, he just has to guard it and keep it. Now, chapter 16 is a lot about gold and what we do with it, what we do with our possessions. But before we get into it, let's just get into a helicopter together. And let's just have a little ride, okay? And let's have a little ride over chapter 15 and chapter 16 of Luke and see what Luke is doing. You may remember the very beginning of Luke in chapter 1. Luke says that his goal is to um, set out an orderly account. Uh, and when he says orderly account, he doesn't mean a chronological account, strictly speaking. Although it is roughly chronological, it starts with Jesus' birth and it ends with his death. Luke is organizing the material in such a way as to tell the story of salvation. And in chapter 15, he has told um, one side of that story, which is what God has done us. What God does for us. Do you remember the three parables in chapter 15 about a lost sheep that is found, a lost coin that is found, and a lost son who is restored to his father? And in, tho in those three parables, we see how God takes the initiative in finding and rescuing that which is lost. A helpless sheep restored, a lifeless coin found, a hopeless son again restored. And it's the father, it's God, it's the shepherd, it's the woman, it's the father who do the rescuing, do the saving, do the restoring. You see, because we are incapable of finding ourselves, of saving ourselves, of rescuing ourselves. We are like sheep that just wander off and become helplessly lost and helplessly in trouble, and the shepherd brings us safely home. We're like a coin that is inanimate. A coin just lies there, and it will lie there forever because it is incapable of rescuing itself or finding itself or doing anything for itself. It's just there under the sofa. And it has to be found and brought back as a treasure. Uh, and same with the son. This son is down on his luck. He's down and out, and he ends up down on his knees. And he is completely helpless, and he comes back, and the father runs to him and takes hold of him. And notice how the father doesn't just say, well, you can come back, but you're in the sin bin for a while. You know, we'll tolerate you, but you're going to have to earn your res our respect again. He doesn't do that. 
He kills the fatted calf. He has a party. There's rejoicing. There is lavish love and grace poured out on this son who doesn't deserve any of it. As Poe preached on the, um, the lost coin, it is amazing grace. This is the gospel, God's amazing grace towards us. There's a song that we used to sing, and uh, the grace of God upon my life, do you remember it? And uh, it says, doesn't it, the grace of God is unlimited, unmerited. Um, what does it go on to say? Unlimited, unmerited? Unwarranted and unfailing. Uh, yeah, I, I, sh- I, forgot, I forgot to write the rest of it down. But anyway, it is the grace of God is completely unlimited. It's completely unmerited. It's completely unfailing. It's completely unconditional. It is just given to us despite ourselves. So that's chapter 15, what God has done for us. So chapter 16 now says this is what we should do in response to what God has done for us. This is our logical, reasonable, right response to what he has done. And that's what the Bible does again and again. It says, this is what God's done for you. Now, this is how you should respond. This is who you are now in Christ And therefore, this is how you should be as a result of who you are. I've said it before, but I'm sure we all remember from The Lion King, the um, little kind of uh, section where Simba is uh, being shown his father's reflection in the river, in the water. And uh, the uh, father says to him, to Simba, you have forgotten who you are. And so you've forgotten me. Look inside yourself, Simba. You are more than what you have become. You must take your place in the circle of life. And I can't quite do the Mufasa voice, but you know. Um, he's forgotten who he is, and therefore he's, he's forgotten how to be, how to behave. He's forgotten his responsibilities. And the Bible keeps reminding us, remember who you are. And then, remember how to be the person that God wants you to be because of who you are. And, and we find this just again and again. I mean, just a quick reminder. I mean, for example, in Ephesians, this is what the Apostle Paul does in Ephesians. I mean, for example, in chapter 2, uh, the first half of Paul's letter to the Ephesians reminds us of what God has done for us. You know, chapter 2, verse 4 says, Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our sins. It is by grace you have been saved. So then he prays in chapter 3, verse 18. Uh, I think those verses are there, sorry. So chapter 3, verse 18, he then prays that um, you should be rooted and established in this love you, you, so that you can grasp how wide and long and high and deep is his love for us. So we're told about his love for us. And then in chapter 4, Paul switches and says, Now I urge you, live a life worthy of who you are, of your calling. 
He says, you know, I insist on it. You shouldn't live like you used to live any, anymore because now you are God's dearly loved children. Chapter 5 and verse 1 tells us that because of what he's done, we're God's dearly loved children. And therefore, he says, be imitators of God, lives, live a life worthy of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering. Among you, there must not be a hint of sexual immorality, of any kind of impurity or greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. There shouldn't be obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking. All of these are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. So he's saying to them, now listen, live as children, because that's who you are. And Paul does it again, and I don't worry, I'm not going to do a huge survey of the whole Bible, but uh, he does it again in Romans. It's exactly what he does in Romans. In chapters 1 to 8, he sets out, you know, you used to be under God's wrath, under his righteous judgments. But now, chapter 3, verse 21, a righteousness from God has been revealed. So that we're now justified freely by his grace. We've been justified by faith. We have peace with God. We can rejoice in hope. He's poured out his Holy Spirit into our hearts. It goes on to say later in Romans, doesn't it? It says that when we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And so therefore, as we were reading this morning from uh, Amos read and so on, because of all of this, we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God, that we are more than conquerors because of him. And it, it, we haven't got the verse now, we don't panic, but in chapter 6 it reminds us that you, we've been set free from sin and we're now slaves of righteousness. So, suddenly in chapter 12, Paul switches. He says, okay, so that's who you are. That's what God has done for you. So therefore, he says, in chapter 12, verse 1, in view of God's mercy, offer yourselves as living sacrifices. This is your reasonable act of worship. This is just the way you would want to respond in view of what God has done for us. Find out what his good, pleasing, perfect will is. So, going back to Luke and chapter 16, that's what Luke does. Luke says, this is who you, were, you are, you've been found by God. Now, in chapter 16, this is how you should live. And he says in chapter 16 and verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So what he says is, you've got a new master now. You're living for him, and you need to be wholly devoted to him over everything else. You are my everything, is now what we want to say to God. And what Luke does is he says, this is the test of whether this is real for you and whether you're really someone who has a new master. 
What is the test? How does the rubber hit the road for us in practical ways in our lives? It's not how high your hands go in worship, although that's a good thing to do. It's not how many songs you sing in worship. The real test is what you do with what you have. It's a practical morality that's to be lived out in our lives in every way. We have a new master, we're living wholeheartedly for him, and that's going to be in everyday life. I would have embarrassed him if he'd been sitting here, but he's out there, so uh, you can all embarrass him later. As Greg, all right, on Friday, let me tell you what happened. We all turned up at Men for the Master on Zoom. It was a super little meeting for half an hour. Greg led it really nicely. Uh, at the end of it, he signed out. Uh, we all had a good talk, a good conversation. Uh, and a bit later that morning, I wrote to Greg and said, hey, uh, Joshua and I thought that was a particularly good men for the master this morning. We really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. And then I said, oh, and by the way, are you still okay for doing games with Greg tonight at FYG, our youth group? And uh, he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm all set for games, games with Greg tonight. No problem at all. So uh, he started his morning with men for the master. Now he's going to give up his Friday night to go and do games with Greg at FYG, okay? And then suddenly we discover, Amos posts it on the thing, it's Greg's birthday today on the Friday. You think, wow. And he didn't even mention it. He didn't mention it at Men for the Master. He started his morning like that. He's going to go out in the evening and serve. And I was like, came to mind, like, oh no, he's, you know, I should be helping at FYG tonight, not him, but he'd volunteered. Uh, so, but, I mean, just clear-eyed, you know, uh, yes, yeah, my birthday, but I've just, I'm just serving God. <laughs> now, I mean, Nikki might have something else to say about that, but, <laughs> but just, I mean, I was really moved. It was a brilliant example. I'm not saying, you know, we can celebrate our birthdays, of course, but I'm, it was just a great example, I thought, someone saying, you know, yeah, everything I have, I want to just serve God, and, uh, and so on, so... Here we see that this is what he's saying. He's saying, look, what you do with what you have is the real test that you now are following him as, his, as your master. And so, he, you see, the thing is, you can't have two masters. Now, some of us might have two jobs. Some people can manage to kind of do a job during the day and another job during the evening or whatever. But back then... If you were a slave to someone, everything you had, all your energy needed to be devoted to that particular role that you had. And therefore, you can't be divided in your loyalties with one foot in one camp and one in the other. You have to be clear, this is who I belong to. And so then he gives uh, further principles on this issue of what it means to live out this life of uh, service to God. Back in verse 12, he says, if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? So he's saying that what you have actually is God's property. What you, everything that you have, your gifts, your time, your talents, your possessions, they're actually someone else's property. They're God's, they belong to him. 
I, I was reading in 1 Chronicles 29 and verse 12, where it says there that, uh, you know, Paul, um, David is praying and uh, he says in uh, verse 12, he says, wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your hand. Everything comes from him. We're stewards. We've been given a trust. Our time has been given as a trust to us by God. Our gifts have been given. Our money, everything we have has been handed to us by God and said, now look, I want you to be a good steward of these things that I have given you. And in verses 10 and 11 of Luke 16, he gives us another principle Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? Interestingly, that word there, worldly wealth, is in the old versions of the Bible, it says mammon. And uh, you may have heard that phrase before, mammon unrighteous mammon. And the word mammon comes from uh, a Hebrew word, mammon, and uh, an Aramaic word that is similar. And it basically means wealth, but it looks like it probably comes from a root which means firm or certain from which we get our word amen. So mammon, amen, it's a similar kind of thing. In other words, mammon means that which you put your trust in, something which you feel certain and firm and secure in. It's the thing you put your trust in. And here, Jesus says that we need to be trustworthy with worldly mammon, but not put our trust in it, but rather put our trust in God and use it to serve him. Use what we have to serve Yes, to look after ourselves, to look after our families. And that's absolutely right, that we should bless and honor and build memories and so on with our families if we're married. That we should use it for mission, we should use it for God's kingdom. In verse 9, he says, use it to invest in people. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. When it is gone, did you notice that phrase? It will go. It won't last forever. So don't just, just hoard for the sake of it. Use what you have to build memories, to bless people. Be wise. Be generous. Be creative with what you have. There's a phrase that the rabbis used to use, which was this, the rich help the poor in this world, the poor help the rich in the world to come. I want to just say, it's been with me all week, actually, and I know I mentioned it briefly last week, but I'll just say it again. 
if you have invested your time, your gifts, your energy, your possessions, your money in the kingdom in any way, then you've been wise and shrewd. Well done. That is not wasted. That, that, that now counts. And it hasn't been wasted. Well done for doing that. You've made, the right, you've made a shrewd decision because you're investing in the future kingdom. You're investing in your future inheritance. And whether you've invested in your children, whether you've invested in uh, sharing the gospel, whether you've spent time doing rotors and helping serve, whether you've uh, been involved in whatever it is in terms of serving God, giving to him, financially even think about what, what, what we managed to do with this building through, through incredible generosity. All of that counts and it's good investment. You might say, well, I went off, um, I've served somewhere and I didn't really you know, lead to anything or I, I tried and I don't think it's really been worthwhile. I was reading in Isaiah chapter 49, and uh, Isaiah says there, you know, um, or let me just quickly find it. It's not on the screen, but I'll just, just find it because it's been with me all week. Uh, 40, chapter 49 and verse 4, it says, uh, Isaiah says, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. So here's Isaiah feeling sorry for himself, thinking, well, I've, what was the point? <laughs> I'm a failure didn't produce any fruits and then the response is what is due to me is in the Lord's hand and my reward is with my God isn't that a good verse isn't that helpful don't worry about it you served gave God the reward is with him he can look after the results you you served and that's what counts so as we draw to a close, we're told in this passage, in all areas of our life, we should wholeheartedly, gratefully, devotedly give all to our master. And what's interesting in this passage, that it finishes by saying this, the Pharisees who loved money sneered at Jesus. They, they didn't like what Jesus was saying. Because why? Because their hearts were not in the right place. They hadn't got a new master. They hadn't been changed. They hadn't been found. They didn't understand this grace. And therefore, they, they were still clinging on to the old, you know, they were being the dragons clinging on to the gold. And Jesus says to them, God knows your hearts. God knows your hearts. I was reading um, an account of Jim Elliot, and you may know about uh, Jim Elliot. Uh, he got a few pictures here. He wasn't well known during his life. He grew up as a Plymouth brethren uh, and went to Wheaton College, and then he followed God's call to reach the uh, Quechua Indians of Ecuador. And the thing that he's most well known for is his life, in his life is his incredible passion 
that he had for those without Christ, which ultimately led to his martyrdom and the martyrdom of his four missionary friends at the hands of the very people that they were trying to reach, the Haruani Indians of Ecuador. But of course, we all know the famous quote, just back one, thanks. The famous quote where he says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Well, that quote comes from a diary entry, which we can see on the next slide, which he wrote before he was martyred. And it's tiny writing, but October the 28th, you can see this where it's asterisked. This is where he wrote, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And then I was amazed when I spotted this. He quotes Luke 16, verse 9, that when it shall fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. That's that quote from Luke 16. When, when, when you've lost it all, you will be received into everlasting habitations. And that's what motivated Jim Elliot. And then to famously say, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. A wonderful example. And we know that God has given us his grace. It's free, it's unearned, we don't have to pay for it. But the result of him giving us that grace is now we live for him. Now we want to live our lives for him. And as we do that, we know that there will, that is the best way to live. And there is wonderful reward. It's the most rewarding life that we can possibly live. So may we pray. Lord God, we thank you for how you found us when we were lost. You saved us when we were unable to save ourselves. Thank you for what you did for us, Lord. Yet not I, but Christ in me. It was all you. And Lord, we, we now want to just offer everything to you again afresh. And Lord, we thank you that you remember the things that we have done to serve you. And we thank you, Lord, that those things have been wisely invested. And we thank you, Lord, that you would say, well done. I, I pray for people right now who maybe feel, well, what was the point? I ask you, Lord, for an encouragement that our reward is in your hands. And Lord, we want to afresh commit ourselves this morning. We, t we ask you, Lord, please give us wisdom and give us faith to take what we have and to use it for your glory. Show us how we can do that, Lord, in our everyday lives. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.